Presents a music and talk show where your host Darren Roebuck is joined by a variety of artists, scientists, entrepreneurs, and therapists as they share what's on their minds and give you new ideas and practices to help you get the most out of being you. Can you dig it? Be sure to visit deeporbitstudio.com for links, show notes, and more. Now sit back and take in the view while we blast off Hello. into All right, Deep Orbit. Welcome to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. I'm your host, Darren Roebuck, and with me today is director, cameraman, filmmaker, and captain of the Netherland Fire Department, Eric Peter Abramson. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So we're going to talk about your new film that you're just in the initial stages of working on now. But uh, before we jump into all of that, you know, there's so much stuff to talk about. I mean, we've known each other for over 20 years now. Yeah. We've been part of the local uh, you know, artistic music film scene mm. in the Boulder, Denver area. And we've seen a lot of changes happen. Yeah, things have evolved for sure. Things have definitely evolved. And I was really wanting to get your take on what you think about uh, what's what you've seen in the last 20 years of the, uh, the the film scene in particular in the Boulder and Denver scene. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Boulder, Colorado was never, ever a cinema or television. And I include Denver in this. I think it's a front range kind of phenomena. There was a time in the 70s where some TV shows were produced here, but uh, it never really grabbed on as a major market like a Chicago, a New York or in L.A. And But people like living here. And so what you typically saw for a long time is people that would be successful and they would, uh, you know, make their films in Hollywood and maybe they would somewhat semi-retire here or get some residency here. But uh, there was no cohesive uh, community. And that all started to change uh, when uh, about 25 years ago, uh, a woman won a, a really wonderful uh, Oscar for a short doc about uh, Doctors Without Borders. Suddenly it was OK to be a Colorado filmmaker. And then we saw sort of a, a people starting to settle in different places. Telluride has become sort of a, a community, bedroom community for L.A., dare I say it. But it's true. There's a lot of actors, a lot of producers up there who found a place that's peaceful for them. I got that immediately. I wasn't going to be living in Los Angeles and being creative. I felt like it sucked me dry. It was too much energy to try to exist in that environment. We're here in the woods and the calm and the mountains. It gives you a chance to clean your head and be really creative. And so as a result of that, we've now had a lot of successes. Uh, there's been several other Oscars now won, both for short and feature. I'm proud to be involved in a film called The Cove, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit today, that uh, you know slayed the festival market and went on to win the Oscar. That was a huge accomplishment for a feature film that was produced out of Boulder. I was going to say, that that seemed to slay regular old audiences, too. And, yeah. And, and being way more than just an entertaining film, it was seriously important yeah. in, in raising awareness and in changing people's outlooks uh, yeah. about the oceans when as coming from a landlocked state yeah. 5,400 feet above sea level. Well, the director was always famous for saying, you know, why is the Oceanic Preservation Society, the group that made the cove, why are we in Boulder? And uh, Louis was famous for saying, well, that's conveniently located between two oceans. 
<laughs> it's a look. It's a healthy place. It's an open place. It's a very energetic place. And so why not? Why not be a place where really important projects can come from? And uh, what's been nice? It's sort of a sense of pride now. I, when I was a camera assistant, I worked in New York and LA a, a little bit. I had a pager for a Santa Monica telephone number. I never told people I'd go out there, work for a little bit, come home, be a ski bum. And uh, now I'm very proud to be from Boulder. People are supportive. They know about the films that are coming out of here, and they continue to come out of here. There's films that, even though they haven't won Oscars, Chasing Ice has been very successful. Uh, you know, even some feature films are starting to happen here. So it, it's it's fun to see the community coming together a little bit in the current era. And it's fun to see some of the you know bigger, more established studios start to recognize that this is a really hot artistic community here Yeah, between music and film and visual art and really just basically across the board. It's a very accepting, intelligent and productive part of the world. Yeah. And people are starting to wake up to that. Well, and I think also there's a certain amount of element of, you know, folks that are in the major markets, they kind of want to live vicariously through me a little. You know, I, I get the sense that like I go to have a meeting in L.A. or something and that half the meeting isn't talking about the project. It's like, wow, like what's it? Is it cool living in Netherlands? What's what's legal marijuana like? Like they're totally into our lifestyle and they can't really quite figure out how to achieve that there. And so there is this sort of thing like I'm glad I, I hung in there. I'm still here. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Well, having grown up in L.A. myself, I was right. I was quick to get out of it. Yeah. And I know that all the people out there. Yeah. Love to leave it. <laughs> well, look, you know, it is a center and I do love uh, many, many dear friends that live there and work there. And, you know, I think that they've just decided that their work is the most important thing. And, you know, some of us are maybe fortunate. Look, I, I don't make as much money as my peers do in big cities, but my brain's pretty intact because of it. <laughs> so, you know, it's a hit and miss. I think it's, you know, it's a give and take either way. Well, let's uh, get a little bit of your background here. You've been involved in this in multiple yeah. multiple lives, yeah. basically, for uh, a long period of time. And so mm-hmm. you started as a filmmaker, but you're also the captain of the Netherlands Fire Department. Yeah. And I know essentially firsthand from living right. here through some stuff like what you've been through and they're yeah. extremely different lives, uh, which I know you're going to be bringing together in your yeah. current project. But um, give us a little bit of, of your history. OK, well, I guess uh, let's start with the fire thing. Um, my grandfather um, during World War Two went with his three best buddies down to the recruitment office to sign up for the war, as many people did then. It was a it was a just cause. People felt like they needed to stop the Nazi blight. He went down there of the four of them. He was rejected. He had uh, flat feet, they called it. I guess that's arch supports is what he needed back then, but they didn't have those. So anyway, he was encouraged to join the Civil Defense Corps in Newark, New Jersey, where his family was and his business was. And these are the guys that went around and made you turn your lights off during bomb drills. And this was sort of a group that helped the civilians protect themselves from you know traditional warfare. Um, this was run by the Newark Fire Department. So my grandfather got involved with the fire department for many years. And as he became an older man and retired, he was really into firefighting. We'd go visit firehouses together. He just was very, he instilled in me that these are great people and that you should be one of them. And uh, as I moved along um, in the arts, my uncle was a very successful photojournalist. I was always interested in that. And uh, as a high schooler, I worked in a mountain uh, club, the Appalachian Mountain Club in New Hampshire. Part of our primary duty was backcountry rescue. And within a couple of weeks, I went on my first fatality, a climber who had fallen and died. And it was gruesome. I was okay with it. I grew up on a farm. I ate my own meat. I, I was familiar with death in a lot of intimate ways. Unfortunately, my mother passed away when I was quite young. So for me, I've always been comfortable in the presence of death and dismemberment. And 
I saw that I had the ability to, to be like that and I could function at a high level. And so I continued to do that stuff. And I moved out here to go to college, started studying film, got away from it for a while, eventually ended up in Netherlands and uh, making films, being an assistant cameraman. And we had a very wet spring and the fire department came by and helped me pump my basement out. And the guys saw my search and rescue stuff in my house. I had a bandana from my club and some pictures. Well, you should come down. We do that. And that was 20 years ago. And so I've moved up the chain of command. I'm the senior volunteer officer. We have paid guys as well. And we all work together and get stuff done. And it, as you mentioned earlier, that even though we're not a busy fire department, I know guys on New York Fire that run more calls in a shift than I'll see in a month. You know, 30 calls in a, in a 24-hour shift. That's a huge, that's a month for us. But within that wrapped in all that, even though it's a less volume, you know, I've watched hundreds of houses burn up. I've seen airplanes crash. Even the bigger events of our county, the flooding is something that we've all talked about. And most of the country knows that Boulder Canyon, you know, the St. Vrain Canyon, these canyons got destroyed by the flood and cut a lot of people off. And so it's, it's been nice to have the two separate areas. What I've found ironic about all this is that uh, I've probably learned more about being an effective director by being a captain on a fire department. A, because when you're making films, it's not a life and death situation. At least it shouldn't be. I believe in set safety. But overall, you know, it's an important, it's expensive. There's a lot of pressure to make a film happen with a big crew. But there's no reason to yell. We don't yell when people are dying in front of us. It's a very calm, focused, task-based thing, just like filmmaking. And so it's been very easy for me to use the management I learned on how to, say, get an actor to do something that I need them to do, or even a person that's never been interviewed to be comfortable and see what they need out of it. it that translates into what happens with my crew. So that's a long explanation of that. But uh, it's been sort of fun to have the parallel. And my parents instilled in me a long time ago that, you know, yeah, it's great. If you become fabulously wealthy, sure, give, give your money away. But they all always told me, and I haven't become fabulously wealthy, to give your time to something. So uh, Nederland, when, you know, going back to that flood when they pumped out my uh, basement, I felt like this is the best way I could get back to my community. And that's my role in Nederland. People know that I'm going to show up with a group of guys to make it right. And uh, it's a sense of pride. And it's a great thing to talk about, especially, you know, you're out with all these movie people. They don't want to talk about movies. They want to know what we've seen and what's happened and what that experience is like. And it's an ongoing process and uh, it can be very damaging and demanding, but it's also ultimately gratifying. We can turn someone's day around. You know, we spend 30 seconds with someone we can change their life literally if they're hurt or if they're just a little kid who sees these firefighters. I recently uh, attended a, um, a lecture with a very famous chief from Chicago, uh, uh, Lasky and his his teachings are about pride and ownership and being proud because you know if you're in a city department you don't know your neighbors you you just come to work you do your thing and it, it's easy to get separated in a small town you don't have that luxury and uh you know Lasky talks a lot about the pride of of the job and that corporate he does these lectures for corporate america they tell him all the time we dream of having the kind of trust from our customers that you get a strange man will let me go into his daughter's bedroom without a question He'll hand me the keys to his house. He will hand me his dog in a car accident. He will trust me with the most intimate knowledge of his, without question, because of my fire service. That's really incredible. Yeah. That's got to feel great. It does, you know, and it, 
it, it's a sense of pride to continue that tradition. It goes on for hundreds of, it's, you know, a couple hundred years old now. And we have more volunteers, for example, in the country than we do paid guys. And it is a, a great community. And it, I can walk into, I've walked into firehouses all over the world. When I was in Japan with the Cove crew, I spent four hours at the Osaka main station. Two guys spoke English there. And it didn't matter because we're brothers. Right on. You know. Well, in keeping up with tradition of Deep Orbit Studio Presents, we're going to cut to some tunes here that Eric was uh, so gracious as to share with us. So uh, here's a little Los Lobos for you on Deep Orbit Studio Presents.
so we're back here on Deep Orbit Studio Presents, and uh, I'm speaking with Eric Peter Abramson, director, cameraman, filmmaker, and a fireman for professions that you normally don't <laughs> hear together. But those four have come together, and Eric's brought them together, uh, basically taking his two great loves and skills in life and is working on a project that is all about... Well, Eric, why don't you tell us about your okay. project? Well, I'm just going to play off what you just listened to. Uh, the Los Lobos song is a, about someone who uh, maybe throws away a, a supportive or loving person. And I've seen this happen with firefighters, mainly as a direct result of uh, their experience. A lot of people use the term PTSD. When I say that on the air, you immediately think of a soldier. Firefighters uh, also have a real problem often managing some of the things they get to see. I've seen in my 20 years, even on a small department, I've seen some of the most horrible stuff that you can imagine, just really broken people, horrible situations, people losing all their possessions, whatever it is. These things cumulatively can really affect firefighters. And uh, we haven't often done the best job in that culture of giving new guys the tools to manage that. And it can have some disastrous results. Uh, the suicide rate in firefighting is higher than the national average. I uh, have been thinking about this for a long time because not only for myself and taking care of myself and my own traumatic experience, but also as a captain, I'm responsible for my crew. And I'll give you a little anecdote without giving you too much information. The other night we ran on a, a medical call with an, an older woman um, who was having a very serious medical call. And uh, in the course of her uh, condition, um, we had a brief moment where her oxygen wasn't being delivered in the quality that we would like. Now, this didn't really affect the outcome of the call, but I could tell that my firefighter, who's a very skilled EMT and has done great work, was really bothered by it a little bit. And it's this little event. Now, this isn't going to necessarily send him over the edge, but it's this one little item out of hundreds of calls. What if? What if I'd done something a little differently? Now, in this case with this woman, it's clear we've gotten the feedback from the hospital now that there was nothing that we were going to do for her. But it's those kind of little events, these little things, like the Los Lobos song says, that really start to add up. And so about a year ago, uh, across the street from me, I had a neighbor who was on my fire department, a board member, very active guy, who was also a police officer, was involved in a traumatic uh, shootout um, that was a shooting up at the ski area several years ago. And he unfortunately took his life last year. And you can look, you know, you do your research, you can find the story. Um, it was really sad to watch because I saw a gentleman who obviously did the right thing in the, in the heat of a moment, and it was something he carried with him. But he really never was able to get that demon out of him. And uh, unfortunately, it had a very tragic end. I don't want to see that happen anymore. We have a lot of understanding about trauma now and PTSD and, and how the mental state can be affected by events around you. And so why not try to improve that? So hence my next project, which is a film I'm calling Wounded Without Weapons. And it's a documentary exploring PTSD or cumulative trauma in the fire service. So it's something I really believe in. I can see how it affects people. I see how it affects myself. Um, I'm a motorcyclist. I've been riding since I was eight years old. And I have seven points in Boulder Canyon between the city of Boulder here where we are now and uh, where I live in Nederland where I have fatal accidents that I've been directly involved in. Seven spots, seven families, seven people that made bad decisions. But 
you remember these places, you remember certain details about these events, and it's how you how you pack that, how you manage that information is how your outcome is. It's a challenge, you know. For me, it reminds me to ride slow and steady and, and be heads up and not take chances. Uh, many of the guys on my fire department don't ride anymore because of those experiences. And so I'm curious about people's resiliency and what makes someone naturally resilient and what makes someone just throw it all in and go do something else or, you know, like blow up their personal relationships or become alcoholic, whatever it is. So I really feel like a film's a great way to communicate that. And yeah. Do you consider this film to be part of your own PTSD therapy? I believe it is. Yeah. I think it's me coming to terms with my own. And like I said, you know, I don't have a, a lot of the guys I've talked to that really suffer and been diagnosed specifically with PTSD talk about a slideshow they can't control. And I'm not at that point. But for me, I do have those images. I'm able to manage them pretty well. But then the other commonality I see in people that said the same thing that I'm saying to you right now is that they had an event happen that caused them to not be able to control it. And I'd like to get to my knowledge of how to manage it before that happens. And so I wonder, I, when my pager goes off in the middle of the night and it tells me there's a horrible car wreck somewhere or a house on fire, my immediate thought is, wow, is this going to be the situation that sends me or one of my guys over the edge? And so that is in my mind a lot. And so, yes, I think it is. I, I hope that through my exploration of, of the topic and learning about alternative treatments and modalities that people are using, that maybe, yeah, I can come to a place where I'm not worried about that next call starting the slideshow. I can't stop. Right on. So um, in your course here with Wounded Without Weapons, is this going to be uh, sort of an exploration into uh, people's experiences and uh, potential mm. cures? Or uh, what, what's, what, what do you hope to get out of this in the well, end? Well, there's three components to the film, you know, and, and the structure of the film isn't totally clear yet. You know, uh, what I love about documentary filmmaking is you often make broad strokes and then let the film tell itself, whether that's in the edit room or just as you go out there. The three components of the film, though, are trying to define what cumulative trauma or PTSD is. I use both terms because PTSD is a very specific diagnosis, where to me, cumulative trauma is more explanatory of what people are experiencing. It's not necessarily the buzzword. I use both because people understand that. Anyway, we're going to define PTSD, cumulative trauma. What is that? What's going on physiologically in someone's mind? How, is, how do you manifest the trauma you absorb? Right. Second thing is looking at how people are treating it. I'm obviously very interested in the traditional methods of therapy, psych psychiatry, but there's a lot of alternative therapies going on. We talked a little bit about using yoga and Eastern practice to help you manage stress. There's uh, some really out there stuff going on, too. And so we're going to look at the spectrum of what is available. The third thing being the personal stories. We're, we've identified a few firefighters out there in different states of their career, both rookies who are just starting this journey and people who have been doing it for 40 years who are either suffering or are fine. It's sort of amazing how I, I used one example. I have a friend uh, who um, was witness to a very bad helicopter accident on a fire up here locally. Most of the guys on his crew backed away from rotary aircraft. This individual who's in charge of these people is on a helitac crew in Jackson Hall. Now, how is it that this person is able to kind of be resilient? He's nothing special. He's a great firefighter and a committed guy, a nice guy, but he has the ability to, to pa pack the suitcase properly is what one scientist told me. And so these are the, these are the areas of the film that we in, intend to go for. It will end up being a 90-minute feature film. And to answer your question about what's the goal of the film, 
The primary goal of the film is to let should we take a <laughs> So the the main goal of the film is to reach my community. I want firefighters all over the country whether they're in the biggest firefighting uh, system in the country New York Fire to the little firefighters there are three guys in Nebraska taking care of a town of 300, you know. To say, "Hey, look at look at this thing. It exists." It isn't some fuddy-duddy or, you know, fly-by-night or an excuse to get benefits. This, this is really happening, and it's happening to rural firefighters, happening to city firefighters. That's my primary goal is to reach the fire community. If I could have every firehouse in this country see that film as a shift, every shift in that house, and we save a couple firefighters' lives or get them on a better path so that they don't commit suicide or blow up their lives, that would be great. The bigger picture of, this, of the film, obviously, is to further the discussion of mental illness in our country. Very cool. Well, for you, Eric, and all the other firefighting heroes, here is the Foo Fighters. Yeah. 
And that was the Foo Fighters here on Deep Orbit Studio. We're here with uh, Eric Peter Abramson, filmmaker, fireman, talking about his uh, current filmmaking project called Wounded Without Weapons, which is delving into the depths of PTSD with first responders, firemen, policemen, and the like, people that come up on the horrific scenes, people that have to help people on their very worst day and deal with what's there. Uh, and when those people leave the scene, sometimes the scene doesn't leave them. That's and over time, each of those scenes starts to build up, and pretty soon people become less functional. Yeah. Uh, it's been a problem, of course, as Eric had mentioned in a previous mm-hmm. segment. People very much know about it in terms of our war veterans, uh, but there's people every day that are just our community servers who really have an issue with it, too, because they're dealing with equally as horrific of events, um, and sometimes even more so given that it's affecting whole families mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, people that really were just innocent two seconds before are now mm-hmm. in the throes of something horrific. Um, so, Eric, this uh, as we talk about this and what you're working on with the PTSD and the cumulative trauma, which, you know, the same thing, two, two terms for the same thing, Um, It brings up questions about the broader topic of mental health and how it's perceived in the community. Mm. Um, You know, you being someone that has to deal with this personally as well as professionally and with your crew, um, what are you seeing out there? And what do you think some of the problems Mm. are and what do you think some of the solutions are? Well, wow. (laughs) You know, just overall, I think we're becoming, especially with the media access, we're becoming very aware that the planet is stressed. Our environment that sustains us is being challenged to sustain us. And when those kind of situations happen, i.e. the rats on a sinking ship, behavior in society can change. And so as a result of those pressures on our society, I think we see a lot of mental illness as a result of this. And it, it comes up in all different ways. Many people have noticed that narcissism is more prevalent. Well, with narcissism, you know, when, when someone's winning, someone's losing, right? And so there's a lot of losers out there, it turns out, especially if you look economically and transfer of wealth. And people are feeling a little out of control. They can't control the financial relationships with government. They are having trouble paying their bills. These things all contribute to a form of trauma, a stress. And when you have a lot of that in society, behavior is bad. People cut each other off at the you know, at the on-ramp, they cut in front of each other at the supermarket. They don't consider their neighbor when they make decisions. And these things are all part of the society. I I like to tell people a lot that if I was walking down the street, not particularly well-dressed, you know, maybe just casually dressed, and I was bleeding, and I was limping, and I was in serious pain, I am willing to bet in most places in this country, people would come out of nowhere to help you. Not necessarily firefighters, just people. Oh my God, that guy's hurt. We need to get him an ambulance. Now they might not touch you, but they certainly are going to call 911. They're going to make an effort. If I was that same person walking down the street, mumbling to myself, doing weird things with my hands, people don't know who to call. They don't know what to do. So they go the opposite direction. And this is sort of where we're at. You know, you can get into the political aspects of mental health, like when Reagan, when he was governor in California, shut down all the, all the mental health facilities and cut all these people loose onto the streets. Our health system doesn't really address mental health as well as it dresses trauma uh, for people. Like, oh, you have a broken arm? Like physical trauma. Yeah. We know where to take you with your broken arm. We know to take take you when you've been diagnosed with cancer. 
Oh, you're diabetic? We know what to do. Oh, you're see- hearing voices? We don't really know what to do. Yeah, get off of my porch. Get off of my porch. <laughs> and so, you know, this is the issue. And I, I think it, it's just, you know, as we try to redefine our health system in this country, which obviously is needing to happen, and we're making some efforts, but I'm not so sure that we are. You know, that's a whole different discussion. The bottom line is, is that actual medical, or not actual, physical, mental, or medical issues are way easier to comprehend. I can see your broken arm. I can't see your broken head. You can comprehend uh, or you can relate with the pain because everyone's fallen down at some point in their life. Yeah. And so people understand that, you know, but it is also, I think, you know, we talked, you touched briefly about how, you know, soldiers are what we see. And most people that when you ask about PTSD, they think, oh, well, the person's hurt and they saw something bad. Like a PTSD patient has to have a physical ailment. That's just not correct. And what's really happening is that there's really specific signs you can see in someone you know withdrawal from society not being the same person the change in personalities you know relationships falling apart threats of suicide alcoholism other types of drug abuse it 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 presents itself similarly in lots of different cultures and so it's really a matter of giving people the tools and so i think you're going to start to see more discussion especially in the film community about these topics it relates to a lot of our bad behavior you know well, it seems to me from pure layperson's perspective that um, education is absolutely mm-hmm. the key to it. Uh, you know, from my personal experience, I was a psychology major at CU. Right. And when I took uh, the uh, abnormal psychology class, it was taught by a guy who was one of the psychiatrists at a, a schizophrenic care facility. Mm-hmm. So at the period, at that period of time, there was a number of We'll call them high-profile schizophrenics on the streets in Boulder, people that dressed oddly and acted oddly, (laughs) and everybody in town basically knew who they were. And uh, everyone was kind of scared of them, especially this one woman who would just start screaming foul things. And it was pretty scary to to witness her. then after taking this class, and I remember specifically one day in class, the uh, instructor just said, you know that lady that screams out foul stuff? She's a paranoid schizophrenic. This is her problem. And he went into the details of it. And he's like, and you know the the guy that wears the overalls and four ties and looks like Santa Claus? He's like, he's a catatonic schizophrenic, and he's like this. Mm. And all of a sudden, I wasn't afraid anymore. I saw them as just people that had the broken arm, but it was in their head. Yeah. And I became much friendlier with them. I looked them in the face. Mm -hmm. I said, hi. I even engaged in conversation with what I previously thought of as the crazy lady, but she ended up being cool. And I just understood that, you know, she has this thing in her head and she, yes, she sees the devil. (laughs) and She tells him to run away, to to go away in her foul mouth way, but she was cool. And just understanding that little bit of information completely changed my outlook. And I really can't wait for your film to come out and more mm-hmm. stuff to follow that allows for people to understand what people are going through mm-hmm. and just pat them, pat everybody needs a little pat on the back. Yeah, I think you there's know? a thing, you know, that one of the things a lot of people talk about, you know, you'll hear about, and I think about my neighbor who took his own life. Oh, I could, I don't understand how someone could commit suicide. It's really important to understand, and I think you're touching on this, that once you understand that they are seeing things through a different lens, and so you can't put your rational mind into that. You can't plug your rational mind into the this person's hearing voices. And it's in my town of Netherlands specifically, we have a lot of public lands around. 
we have people that kind of get left alone. So we do get some visitors. And it's really easy for some of my guys to, oh, that guy's just a drug-riddled drunk. No, there's something deeper going on there, and he just hasn't been diagnosed. And once you understand diagnosis, now, again, I, I want to stress that PTSD is a very specific diagnosis. I think it's a broader umbrella than that. I mean, that's, ten, that's the, that, that the psychology community tends to, they want to put a label and a diagnosis on it. And I think it's a little broader, but um, it is that thing of like, once you understand the diagnosis, you can understand how to interface with somebody who's hearing things or seeing things or is in the classic PTSD is just totally withdrawn or can't deal. It's really important for people to understand, and soldiers say this a lot, that in, unless you've had taken enemy fire with a bunch of your brothers and sisters, you'll never understand. And this is the challenge in the fire service. And part of the idea of the film, too, is that it's not only for the, the firefighter. It's for the spouse to help understand, man, why is my husband so pissed off? Why can't he just get up today and go paint the house. And so it's those tools and it, it serves the person who's exposed to it. It also serves the people around them. Yeah. That's uh, another really awesome point too, is that we're all family or friends of somebody that has this. We all are. It's, yeah. it's just spread around so much that, uh, you know, the public at large needs to, just like we all know now to wash our hands when we go in public so we don't spread colds, right. we also need to know yeah. how to handle and approach our friends that have been in traumatic situations, and it can be absolutely anyone. Absolutely. There's, a, you know, the thing I've found interesting is I'm, I'm just beginning to raise funds, and, you know, we're really looking in the immediate community right now just to get our development money together so we can get a short video and further our fundraising. And what I'm finding interesting is is that, Obviously, firefighters who have been in the service for all get it, totally. Soldiers get it. But what I'm really interested in, and this is telling me that this is an important film, is that civilians will bring up certain things. I've been talking, I talked to other women. I know exactly what you mean, man. I lost my entire house in the Sugarloaf fire, and it was brutal. My, my, my marriage fell apart. That's a traumatic situation. Someone else said to me, I want to get behind your film because I had an alcoholic father who abused me. And it took me a long time to confront all that trauma and and process it properly. And so there is, like you're saying, it is really prevalent and people should be mindful of it. It is interesting to see, though, this dichotomy of, oh, well, you're a firefighter. You're a tough hero. You bust down doors. You save houses. You, you're, you're above that. No, we're just like everybody else. There's a human element to it. And it is interesting that people have no idea. Like the, the thing I hate the most is when a guy comes up to me at a at a party and he knows I'm a firefighter and he looks at me and I goes, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? I'm not sharing that with you. A, you don't have the ability to absorb it and B, you just weren't there. And that makes it hard. Like my friends that are professional soldiers, they, we have an understanding because we have similar experience. My safety of my crew is important above all else. There's similar things, but I still look at my soldiers and go, I'm, I've been threatened with a gun as a firefighter, but I don't have an active every day going against an enemy. So I don't pretend to understand that. And they don't totally pretend to understand what we do because there's a lot of Marines that, yes, they have to deal with it if it comes down, but they're not dealing with the crashed helicopter or that's the medic corps that does that. Indeed. Well, uh, Eric, what do you say we jump into another tune here? This one is called Jump Into the Fire. My favorite bass line, and it's a tune about firefighting, in my opinion anyway. All right, this is a song by Harry Nilsson, and uh, you're listening to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. Mm-hmm. 
What a cool tune. Harry Nelson, Jump Into the Fire. So uh, why'd you choose that one? Well, I, like I told you earlier, it's one of the best bass lines ever. You know, I just love that bass lines rolling. And, you know, Harry Nielsen is just, he's a singer-singer, you know, and I just have always loved his music. And for some reason, that's the song that rolls through my head, especially when we're out on Wildland. When I was on the Forest Service, I did what's called initial attack, which just means we're the first truck in, two or three of us, real fast. We don't have a lot of resources. We're trying to get it done. And I always think of boom, 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 boom. And it gets me kind of pumped up to be focused and get in there. And, you know, it's like anything in life. You have these soundtracks for certain things. When I'm rolling to a fire, more often than not, that tune pops in my head. And so that's why I felt like I should share it with you all. That's really cool. So one question I have in regards to what we're talking about in terms of the PTSD stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. we've been talking about... um, you know, what causes it? And, you know, there's a variety of ways that people use to, mm, to deal with it. Like, you know, you can go back to, I believe it's my episode number eight, where uh, we had the uh, the CEO and one of the practitioners from Give Back Yoga who cr- give uh, yoga to uh, uh, vets and first responders to help them deal with mm. their PTSD. Uh, but I really wonder what is, and uh, I don't think there is an answer, but I'd love your opinion. Um, what are the preemptive things we can do to prevent PTSD from happening mm. in the first place or at least gear someone up who knows they're going into a stressful situation? Mm. What do you think they can do to really keep from getting affected by it as significantly as somebody who's just going in unaware? Yeah. Well, first off, I would say that there's several opinions about that. The research is really ongoing. I mean, I can really, like in the fire service, you know, if you go back to the military, Uh, I have a a great uncle who was in Pearl Harbor on one of the boats. And he was one of those guys that jumped in the water and they thought they were going to survive. And then the sharks got him, you know, and he was put into a VA hospital right after that and never really spoke much of a word for 30 years. And they called that shell shock. The military didn't really figure out what was going on until really Vietnam. And part of what they sort of looked at with the Vietnam vets was that they were coming back to a society that didn't welcome them either. And so they, they really put a lot of it on that, too. Whereas soldiers that came back from World War II had ticker tape parades. We have a mix of that going on now. There's uncertainty about the war. But most people, they generally will thank guys for their service. And I can see that happening. And I can see guys become uncomfortable with that. Like, yeah, what, the- what are you thanking me for doing what I do? The other day, we had a car crash into the Carousel of Happiness in Netherlands. I happened to be across the street. I was there as she was dialing 911. And everyone was like, Eric, you're our hero. I showed up first. There's another crew coming behind me. It's a team, you know. And... So the, the, the opinions are varied, but what I would say is it's really, I like this analogy I've been developing about when you go on a vacation, you pack your suitcase, right? If you do a good job packing your suitcase, you can find all your stuff, your shirt isn't wrinkled, your toothbrush tooth, or your toothpaste didn't spill into something else because you did a good job packing. If you throw all that stuff in there and you run out the door, oh, where's my left sock? Oh, my, tooth, my shampoo broke. It makes it hard to, pro- to enjoy your trip. Right now, you'll get over it, maybe or maybe not. You know, maybe you'll be so frustrated that you'll not go on that trip at all. You know, and so I think it's how you pack your suitcase. You know, in Boulder, we're very fortunate. We have a lot of open minds here, and so we are not New York Fire. New York Fire really didn't talk about PTSD in the service until after 9/11, when they lost you know a third of their officer corps in one day. I mean, this is the largest fire department in the country, and they lost a third of their you know, so this is losing the captains of your team. 
you know, you can't lose that many officers and not, they're just starting to come back as a fully staffed, fully experienced department after years. And so I think it is that it's like, people are starting to learn. I think what we tell our rookies is, look, you have the ability to talk about it. It's okay to talk about it. It's, it's very much like addiction. An addict really can't get anywhere until he recognizes what's happening. I, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. That's the first step for in the 12-step program. But that is really confronting what's wrong with you is the first step. And I think that's part of the, I use the term culture of toughness. You know, it's, it comes from soldiering and it also comes in the fire service. Hey, man, this is your job. This is what you signed up to do. Go freaking do it. That doesn't really help you. And so what I do with my guys is I make sure that at the end of a call, I can see it. I can see when people are bothered. I mentioned briefly, just without the details of a call the other day, that it, it, I don't think it really severely bothered the CMT, but I could tell he was thinking about it. Like, oh my gosh, what if I caught that quicker? Would this outcome be different? And it's okay to think about it that way, but it's also good to hear from the other guys. We all talked about it, the three of us on the call. Hey, man, that didn't matter that much. This person was going down the drain anyway. And to have the, re, the reassurance that what you did was right and you tried your best and sometimes it's not always going to work. And I think having that idea and making it really be okay to talk about. The next step after that is I'm not able to really verbalize it well, and I do need help. And then we go to the more professional. And we're lucky. In Boulder, we have victims advocates. We do what's called a critical incident stress debriefing, which will be very specific to a challenging call. Um, just for people to work through what they did and how they saw it. You know, because you see it, it's like anything. You know, five people see it differently. And so it's really just, to me, that's the, that's the long answer to this question is, is that it's basically recognize that the potential's there, talk about it with your peers who were there, and then if that isn't helping you with it, go to the professional who can really help you work through the issues. Because we get way more losses than saves. I've been doing this almost 20 years, and I can really hold, I would consider three calls that I really saved someone's life out of thousands, Right. Well, Eric, yeah. I know I'll speak for me and I'll speak for all the listeners out there. We really appreciate what you do, not just on the fire department, but with the camera in your hand and, mm -hmm. and raising awareness for what's a super important topic that um, everybody needs to become uh, much better educated about. And for those of you out there that want to learn more about Wounded Without Weapons, you can reach out to Eric on Facebook, and uh, Wounded Without Weapons is its own page. They are still in the fundraising phase of the film, so if you feel moved to contribute, you can get out your checkbook and mail a check to Wounded Without Weapons at P.O. Box 668, Nederland, Colorado, 80466. Um, once again, that is P.O. Box 668, Nederland, Colorado, 80466. And, oh, and I was just going to mention that right now it's not there, but I think by the time that you're listening to this, we will have woundedwithoutweapons.org is the website. Just nothing there right at the moment. Well, and, and, the, and once again, if yeah. you are listening right now, you can find them on Facebook, and then down the road you'll find the links to the full-fledged website. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Really, it's been great. Really appreciate it. So we will leave you, hopefully... Our PTSD people out there won't feel like Martha and the Vandellas in the future here uh, with their song Nowhere to Run To. I'm going to leave you with that. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, everybody.